Hello and welcome to High Heels and Heartache. I'm your host, Kendall Ann Combs. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, This episode of the podcast is really probably the most important episode that I've I've tried to tackle. Um, After the murder of George Floyd and the social unrest that has occurred in the United States, I felt like I really needed to to do my part in some way to help dismantle the systemic and structural racism that exists in our country. But to be perfectly honest, I felt like a very little small person trying to take on a very huge, overwhelming problem. Um, So what I decided to do was to reach out to Ujima, the center Um, the National Center of Violence Against Women in the Black Community, um, to get more information about how domestic violence might affect black women um, differently than it affects white women like myself. Um, And two fabulous people agreed to speak with me, Greta Gordy Gardner and Megan Simmons. And we really had a frank and open and candid discussion about you know why statistics look the way they do when we're talking about domestic violence in the black community. And we also talk about you know what allies can do to help deconstruct this systemic and structural racism that exists in our country today. So coming right up, Greta Gordy Gardner and Megan Simmons. Hey everyone, we are back and I have on the line with me today, Greta Gordy Gardner and Megan Simmons from Ujima. Hi ladies. Good morning. I'm so lucky to have you guys on today. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. Thank you for the invitation. It's our pleasure. So I'm just going to kind of launch into your bios because you two are are very successful, and I'm so happy to have you today. So, Greta, we're going to start with you. Are you ready for us? I'm to ready. On you? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Greta, you are the deputy director and co-founder of Ujima, and your, your career as a legal advisor for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault was inspired by your early work as a prosecutor in the domestic violence unit of the Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office. You've worked for two decades to help shape guidelines, policies, and procedures that local, state, and federal policymakers and college and university campuses can use to end intimate partner violence and racial bias. You are licensed to practice law in D.C., Maryland, Texas, and the Supreme Court of the United States, (laughs) (laughs) and you're a certified mediator. You sit on the board of trustees of Garrison Forest School, and you belong to a multitude of local, state, and national committees that address violence against women and their children. And when you're not changing the world, (laughs) you're changing the world in your own house because you have two boys who love basketball and make a lot of noise. (laughs) Yes, they do. And hopefully not during this podcast. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here, Greta. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And next, we have Megan Simmons, who is equally as successful. 
Your education in women's, women's studies and political science was the catalyst for your career in legal compliance, policy, and advocacy work. You served as a federal agent and were tasked with investigating sexual assault for the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. So Megan, you for real part of the NCIS. <laughs> That's amazing. It is in fact a thing. Um, it, it does in fact exist. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. So you were also collaterally tasked with representing law enforcement on various committees, including holistic approaches to combating violence against women attached to the Navy installation. You later earned a law degree wherein you combined your education and your experience by contributing to policy and conducting investigations into allegations of sexual assault within higher education. You've conducted various trainings on sexual harass harassment awareness, equal employment opportunity, investigation, execution, and diversity and inclusion. And when you're not changing the world, you spend your time cooking, bike riding, and reading. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So I just wanted to take a second and just kind of talk about why you guys are here. So you are two very important members of UGMA, which is the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community. And the reason that you're on today is because this is a moment in time where there is a truly a reckoning in the United States about systemic racism in sort of all facets of American life. And it was important to me to use this show as a way to, you know, support and educate those people, including myself, that might not understand how Black women are treated differently in the justice system and how their experience as survivors might be different from a white woman's experience because of just the way that our our country is, was, and continues to be. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So first, I just want to talk about a little about, about Eugenia, because it seems like a great organization. So tell me a little bit, Megan, what is the mission of the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community? Uh, our mission is to end domestic, sexual, and community violence in the Black community. Um, <clears throat> we spend a lot of our time <clears throat> in an attempt to end it on public policy. We provide trainings. Um, we uplift and, and provide awareness uh, to folks to give them a, a better understanding of how um, things can be a little different as it relates to Black survivors of this type of violence. Um, we make sure people understand that, you know, we're not a monolith. And so our organization is cognizant that the Black community is consists of the Black immigrant communities to include African <clears throat> Africans that have come over um, from the continent of Africa, Afro-Caribbeans, the LGBTQ community, African-Americans. So we just like to make sure people are aware that um, those things can be different. And the way that violence is addressed um, might be different also. Wow, I hadn't thought of that. That's definitely an important point. 
So your, your website has a ton of resources. You have training, outreach, public policy. Can you walk me through some of the resources that your organization provides to Black women who are survivors of domestic violence? Sure. So um, I'm a senior policy attorney. Most of my work is comprised of policy initiatives. Um, some of the work that I'm doing right now consists of um, <clears throat> work as it relates to Black maternal health and how Black women, uh, based, because of implicit implicit bias, excuse me, um, as well as a myriad of other issues, have uh, a high death and morbidi morbidity rate <clears throat> when it relates to essentially birthing experiences. Um, I also do a lot of work on um, the Crown Act, which is an attempt to um, make sure that Black people are not being discriminated against as it relates to employment on the basis of their hair and how it grows out of their head naturally. Um, and that has gotten quite a bit of momentum. Uh, several states have introduced as well as passed legislation as well. And also federal leg legislation has been uh, introduced. Other things that we do, we do have um, a good bit of research that's upcoming and ongoing. We have a, a research team and we've also been um, we we have also been contacted contacted by a few different uh, universities, so we'll see uh, some of that happening in the in the coming months, as it relates to various research, um, economics, housing, and the like. Um, we have a very robust uh, website. We um, make sure that we try to have, we do uh, have podcasts and do different things to kind of bring awareness. Um, our Coffee and Conversations a series has had a myriad of different topics. Um, Black Maternal Health was uh, the first one. Um, <clears throat> and again, several, several other initiatives. We really like to partner with other organizations um, to uplift things that can be done to kind of uh, make sure that we are doing as much as we can to combat violence as it relates to community violence, domestic violence, and sexual violence. Wow. So, so you really are changing the world. <laughs> That's great. You're doing really great work. Um, and in the show notes, I'll make sure that I link the website so that anybody that wants to check out those fabulous resources has easy access to those. So thank you for that, Megan. Thank you so much. Okay, so my next question is for Greta. Um, according to the Institute of Women's Policy Research's status of Black women in the United States, 40% of Black women will experience domestic violence in their lifetime compared to 31.5 of all women. So what do you think are the factors for this difference? Because th that's pretty significant there. So, so what are some factors that have led to that? So there's so many different ways to answer that question, right? Because it's not just like a blanket answer. Oh, this is the cause or this is the reason. So let's kind of break it down by, by level, right? So at the first level, number one, you have higher reporting in the Black community. Not We know all domestic violence and sexual assault reports are underreported anyway, but you have higher incidences of reporting in the Black community, number one, because we're over-policed. Number two, 
particularly in urban areas where you have a concentration, particularly on the Northeast corridor of black communities living in closer quarters with each other. So oftentimes if there is a domestic violence incident or an assault occurring, it is highly likely that somebody else will call the police, you know, because they can hear through the walls or, you know, outside or, or what have you, or because there's a greater presence of police there's a greater chance that you know police will see or be involved or nearby or what have you. So number one, that's where you know you want to look at statistics, but you also want to contextualize it, right? So you you see higher numbers. Um, I lived in a very nice community in Austin, Texas, very um, gated community. Domestic violence happened there as well. I will say there were not as many documented reports, there were not as many arrests, etc. So privilege and class has a lot to do with that reporting statistic as well. The second thing that I want to make very, very clear is just because you do see higher numbers um, within the Black community, it does not mean that Black men are more violent than other races or ethnicities of men. It just means that there's a higher incidence of reporting and or arrests and or, you know, some type of legal intervention, whether that's the criminal courts or the civil courts, where some of the statistics are being gleaned. Lastly, the thing that we do know is the Violence Against Women Act, which was um, passed in 1994, which was um, Vice President Biden's you know, um, signature legislation, did a lot for survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking, a lot. We started having specialized courts, specialized law enforcement agencies, prosecutors, et cetera, more money going towards shelters, protection orders, a robust ecosystem of remedies for survivors who wanted help. What we do know is that it has helped more white women than it has black women. And one of the reasons for that is that we know that if you create resources, women will use them. However, when it came to making resources culturally welcoming or culturally specific so that people felt comfortable using those resources or that they actually felt like they would get help, they'll use them. However, that hasn't been true for all races and ethnicities. And so if you go to receive help or you're trying to do, you know, find out how you can receive help and you're treated with bias or, or even abject racism, Um, or you call the police and when the police come, they see you as being um, combative or not cooperative or whatever, and you end up being arrested as well, or, you know, you just wanted the violence to stop in the moment. You didn't necessarily want him to be arrested because, again, collectivism comes into it when you talk about violence and involving the carceral state of, oh, my God, yes, I was hurt. Yes, I was harmed but I don't want to put another black man into the industrial prison complex. So it gets really, really complicated, but those are kind of three of the touch points that we talk about extensively about why those numbers are so high. And you know, what's so interesting is that I, obviously the, uh, unfortunately the violence against women act has not been ratified again by the Senate. Call your senators, call your senators. Yes, please call your senator. <laughs> but I, you know, I never even gave a second thought to that the resources provided in that act might be harder to come by for Black women. I, I never even had considered that. And that that's probably a huge concern, um, you know, for your organization is, 
just you know, helping black women to get the resources that are available to them. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that we also talk about and train on a lot is that, you know, the way that, and I'm going to say protocol for lack of a better word, you know, protocols that we've been teaching advocates and, and other civil and criminal legal stakeholders is, you know, okay, so you've been abused. Here's some counseling here, go get a protection order here, go file criminal charges. And not everybody wants that. Right. And so how can you help people when, you know, your offerings aren't what they want? Like just sit, listen, develop a rapport, give her some options. Maybe she wants to go home and think about them, you know, what have you. And what we do know is that, you know, for, for some black survivors, when they present and they're help seeking, their safety is not the number one concern. They may be worried about, I'm about to get evicted, or I have nowhere else to go, or, you know, what about my kids, or I just need to get to school, or if I could just get to work, then that helps increase my safety. And we keep saying, no, 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 you need a protection order, you know, and then when that survivor doesn't do what that advocate is advocating for, then they're problematic, then they're not a true victim, then they're not a cooperative victim. And it has a chilling effect on on the survivor of like, I'm just not going to participate in this process because they're not giving me what I need. Yeah. Are are there any, you know, other statistics that are interesting or, you know, maybe misleading um, about violence against Black women that, that you'd like to share? Well, you know, I, I, we go to the homicide rates, you know, I mean, we get into numerous debates, obviously, because what we talk about is a hot button topic, because it forces us to really look at, you know, the worst of, of people, right? Like who, who puts their hands on someone that they love, right? Like who's going to do that? And so it really causes us to be honest about this. And then, you know, we hear too, well, you know, men are victims too, and you know, this and that. And, that. and what I always go to is women use violence very differently than men. And while that may be true, there may be some abused men out there. Women are the ones who are dying, right? So particularly in um, the Black community, you know, that Black women are almost three times as likely to be killed um, than white white females. So, you know, how do we address that so that women are not put in a position of, I can't get help here, I can't get help there, and the things that I'm doing to safeguard my safety um, are not working. So I think one of the other really stark statistics that we really like to use in a lot of our trainings um, when we talk about sex trafficking, um, because there is co-occurrence between domestic violence and sex trafficking, and we can go into another the nuances of that in a whole other podcast, <laughs> um, of really, you know, black bodies, we hear a lot about international trafficking, but we don't talk a lot about domestic trafficking. And black women are trafficked exponentially um, and that traffickers know that they will get a higher sentence if they traffic white women, but they will get more money by, from customers if they traffic white women, but they will get less money if they traffic black bodies, but less of a sentence if they are um, held accountable by the criminal legal system. So that, and, that is shocking. And that most consumers are white buyers of black bodies. Um, so, you know, that kind of gives you both ends of the spectrum of that, you know, we really are um, in great danger. I think one of the other things that I hate about playing the statistics game, we often call it the oppression Olympics. Um, oh. because, yeah, so one thing that you should know, like the counterpart to the Violence Against Women Act is the Violent Family Violence Prevention and Services Act. So that is legislation that was created to fund 
through HHS, shelters, local programs, and some of these technical assistance providers like Ojima. And one of the things that's really, really awesome about FIPSA is that it funds these three culturally specific institutes. So we are one and we address domestic violence in the black community, Casa de Esperanza, which addresses domestic violence in the Latina community, and API, Asian Pacific Islander Gender-Based Violence Institute, which addresses Asian Pacific Islander domestic violence. And so what it has done is created this consortium for us to really look at the nuances and the differences between the communities so that we can address them appropriately. I say that because also there are quite a few tribal coalitions and institutes that address um, domestic violence in the Native American community. But what we find and what, what we feel really lucky that we all get to collaborate is that we are often pitted against each other as far as who is this, who's that, who has more deaths, who has, and as far as we're all concerned, harm is harm. Mm -hmm. There is no um, price tag on grief and pain. And we're not in competition for, with each other to find out who has the most deaths. What I have said to reporters, journalists, you know, whomever asks is, we're not interested in who has the most deaths or most harm. What we're interested in is how do we provide help and resources to those who have had their property stolen and to those who were stolen to become property. Fix that. Yeah. Um, so. Wow. The, and I'll definitely link all those um, communities as well in the show notes. Great. That's amazing work. Um, okay, so now Thank you. we're going to talk about the police, um, which I know is, is a hot button issue. And I, through, through my experience, I had only a little bit of interaction with the police. Um, and as a survivor of domestic violence, as a white woman, my, I did not have the greatest interaction with mm -hmm. the police when I called them. So it made me start to think about like, how might my experience be different or the same as um, black women who might call the police. Mm -hmm. So um, we know that there is systemic racism that exists in police departments. So what changes could be made in those departments that might help support black women who are survivors of domestic violence. Either of you can, can jump in here. <laughs> Megan, I'll, some, of those, some of those changes might be um, just, you know, we've seen a lot of work as it relates to diversity, inclusion, and equity, um, particularly if you're following anything on social media, making sure that those departments are diverse and are inclusive of more Black people, more Black women. Um, some of the things that folks might be cognizant of, of learning more about the communities and the history of policing um, as it relates to the Black community, for instance, being knowledgeable of um, the checkered past that, and not, I think that kind of minimizes, essentially the, knowing that the police uh, department are founded from slave, as you know, were founded as slave catchers. Yeah. And just knowing that while, you know, when you're coming into these communities, um, knowing that folks may have had um, interactions with the police, 
that have been unple- unpleasant. You know, I think a lot of times officers are, you know, feeling like, you know, I'm coming in, I'm here to help, I've been called. And just knowing that maybe folks might not necessarily be as um, <clears throat> welcoming because of the presence that has been in the community for other issues and interactions that folks may have, you know, make sure obviously you're going to go out and do your job. Um, but just being mindful that, you know, what you might consider to be uh, someone being in cooperative or someone um, not wanting to participate, there may be a reason for that. And so you may want to <clears throat> be knowledgeable about what some of those things, um, some of those nuances in the community can be. Um, concerns about immigration, immigration statuses, survivors that perhaps are undocumented, knowing that, you know, when you go in this community, they might not be as willing to communicate with you, or perhaps they can't communicate, you know, there may be a language barrier, um, knowing that, you know, again, people's experiences are different. And when you go into, um, when you're encountering these folks, just knowing that, you uh, it's it just can't be a one size fits all uh, type of situation. So if you throughout your life haven't had positive experiences with the police, if people in your family and in your community haven't had very positive experiences with police, and then the police are who you have to call to protect you, I can I can kind of see that 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 must be a very difficult position to be in. Right. I mean, if your only interaction with law enforcement um, is when they are occupying your neighborhoods Mm -hmm. um, and you see the interaction that they have with your neighbors routinely Mm -hmm. um, and we we are aware that black communities are generally um, have a heavier police presence than other communities, then you want to be cognizant of that when you're trying to assist this person and with <clears throat> when you're trying to assist this person, um, if you've been called out. So maybe as, you know, law enforcement, you have the best intentions to help that woman, but you have to have in your mind that she might want your help, but also maybe see you a little bit as a threat. That, and just be cognizant and, and listen to what that person is asking you to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I think that- oh, And this thing- Oh, go ahead, Greta. I, I believe that like a mental health professional should always be <laughs> um, there when there's a domestic violence call because I can tell you from my experience, I didn't know which way was up at that point and having a social worker or a mental health professional would have been so helpful for me, you know, while the police were there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we talk about change like you were asking like what needs to be changed I think that they you know it gets people get so caught up in like the big change that there are really some really small granular things that we can do to make some some change and so what Megan was talking about are like the big changes right like holding you know bad officers accountable really looking at historical trauma and the contextualizing of the black communities relationship with police right and just like everyday life like the black experience like even on a good day is a little rough right like I'm incredibly privileged I'm, I'm I probably overeducated you know what I'm saying like you know have all these really 
great benefits. I still get followed in stores, right? Like, or I still have to teach my sons about if they get pulled over, what to do, or like, no, you can't have a BB gun or, you know, all these things, right? Like I still have to be proactive around, but I think that there are some really small C changes that can be made too. Like research research says that, you know, female officers are much better de-escalating and analyzing a situation on the scene than male officers. I mean, I think we've seen a really good example of like the COVID response and female leadership across the globe has had better results. So if that's what research is saying and that we can, and it's evidence-based, like maybe we need to look about how we diversify the police population so that when it comes to high conflict or interrelational um, disputes, that we have the appropriate people in the right place. When I was bringing up this concept with the International Association of Chiefs of Police, they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, but one male officer, he said, you know what, if I'm in an interrogation room and if I think that perhaps it's a, a black suspect or, you know, whatever this person is, would respond better to somebody like him, I'm going to go get that person. So that, because my goal is to get the information. What do I care who, who, who he needs in order to elicit that information? The other piece is diversity. Does your police force look like the community that you seek to serve? When it doesn't, like to my earlier point, like that, that creates an immediate situation where you don't have time for rapport building or trust building. And so make your, your police force look like your community and also residency requirements. When you live in the community where you police, you know the good, bad, and indifferent. You already know the nuances. You already know the people and who means harm, who didn't mean harm, who has a substance abuse problem, who doesn't, who maybe just lost their job so that you can incorporate some other elements of procedural fairness or what equity is as far as, you know, is this really arrest or is this, do I call a mental health professional or do I call, you know, how do I help this person and keep this other person safe so that there aren't all these other collateral consequences that create a powder keg later for not only the individuals, but their families in the community at large. Those are really important points. Those are really important points. So we, when we, you know, kind of the first um, leg of what survivors experience is usually some kind of interaction with um, law enforcement. And then many times they are then placed into the justice department, which we also know has implicit and systemic racism kind of baked into the justice department. So what changes could be made to improve the experience with the justice department for black women? Either of you can jump in there. I know that's a big question, right? <laughs> can, you, can you repeat the question? Sure. So how does implicit and systemic racism in our justice department impact Black women who are survivors of domestic violence? And what changes could be made to improve for Black women? I think some of the recommendations have actually already been made. Some of the things that we talked about. I mean, we know that uh, implicit bias exists. Um, we're not questioning that. Um, and so and for the people in the back, right? Megan? <laughs> <laughs> we know that it exists. And so we need to make sure that people, um, one, acknowledge it and two, do what they can to kind of move forward and work through it. Um, some of the things, you know, we've talked about trainings that can be provided um, to folks um, regularly um, because sometimes we need to be reminded of these things. 
Um, also ensuring that, you know, these communities, when you're, when you work with someone on a regular basis and you engage them, you know, as an officer, you spend a lot of time with the people that you work with. Um, you're eating with them. You spend a lot of time in the office together. You interact um, on your social time together. If you're interacting with people that look like the community that you serve and perhaps you don't, it gives you a different perspective when folks walk in and look like the partner that is that you are serving with, you know, you then see that person somewhat similar to the person that you're riding along with that's backing you up. And so I'm not saying it's going to dispel all your implicit bias, but it's going to give you a different kind of perspective. Should you not interact with um, anybody else? Should you, in the event that you don't interact with folks that look like the community that you serve regularly, your perception will be different and the way you interact with those folks are going to be different. I think that'll be helpful. Again, um, not just racially, gender, gender, um, I think plays a part also. And we need to ensure that more women are in leadership, particularly, you know, in law enforcement. I mean, we're seeing more and more women becoming and getting involved in law enforcement and serving, but we need to make sure that they have leadership so that they can be able to um, affect change from a policy perspective. Um, You know, again, uh, seeing is believing, you know, we have seen that some of these uh, with COVID and some of these other things that have been going on, in our crazy 2020, we've seen that, you know, female leadership has um, been helpful, have, have, has made effective change, has been um, important in making sure that, you know, we can go on and in some places return to some semblance of everyday life. And so since we have seen those examples, uh, I think that would make all entities, all employment <clears throat> organizations, disciplines, be more cognizant that we need to have uh, more representation from women. That's a great point. We gotta, you know, keep breaking those glass ceilings and get into the rooms where maybe we haven't been in before. Also making sure that we um, recognize the the intersectionality of systemic racism, that it's not just one thing. It's housing, it's education, it's employment. And it intersects with interpersonal violence. Yeah, I, the only thing I would add, I mean, all of Megan's points are superb. I think the only thing that I would add is that not recognizing and being aware of your own stuff, for lack of a more uh, intelligent word, is... You can call it shit. Okay. <laughs> not being aware of your own stuff is a barrier, right? And so... When we, because I, I, you know, I do judicial trainings too, and you know, judges will say, "Oh, you know, I'm not biased." Like we all have them, like we all have them, mm-hmm. and so the whole goal is like, what are they? Are they real or are they perceived? And how am I working toward improving myself, pushing back on those that are not real, so that I don't cause harm? I mean, if we're all in these um, helping professions but yet we're holding on to our stuff, you can't provide help. You're doing harm. Um, and that, that's not our goal. And so, you know, people make up systems and entities make up systems and then they take on a life of themselves because they come self-propelling and self-sustaining because, you know, how many times have you heard, well, this is what we've always done, mm-hmm. right? 
And so it's so much easier to just go along with this is how it's always been done rather to dis disrupt people's um, perceptions and belief systems and value systems that are wrong, right? And so once that begins to be dismantled, then we can start dismantling systems. But the way in that systems prevent black women from not only being safe, but from surviving and then also healing is there is an investment in making sure that some people don't get help, right? Um, it's too expensive. Mental health resources are so expensive. I was on a chat with, um, or not a chat, on social media uh, for Black women's therapy. And um, a one woman said, I would love to get therapy. I really want a Black therapist. The people I've sought don't take my insurance, and it's too expensive. I can't afford it. But even if the Black community could get over the stigma of therapy and getting mental health help, it's so expensive, right? And so there are all these barriers that are put in place that really prevent people, like eating healthy. Like I would love to shop at Whole Foods and buy organic this and organic that or whatever. It's so expensive, right? And so that's why people go to McDonald's or like they get the dollar meal or whatever. Like they know it's not healthy, but they also know that they need sustenance. And they also know that maybe they only have $2 in their pocket. Mm -hmm. And so I think the changes are so, like Megan said, are so global and intersectional as far as housing, health, mental health and physical health, medical, dental, eye, like everything across the board where we have routinely denied people the opportunity to seek help, to receive help, and to be healthy, period. Um, so. so what I'm hearing you say is it's not just a matter of us like looking at law enforcement in Correct. a vacuum. It's not just looking at the Justice Department in a vacuum. What we have to do is dig into how implicit, you know, um, racism has sort of taken over so many of the basic, you know, needs of people yes. and has affected all of their lives. Like if you think about like the Venn diagrams, right. like, like all of this cross-sectionality is how we've gotten to the space where we are today. Right. And, you know, and one thing that I didn't mention earlier, and Megan could speak more intelligently about this than I, but like, honestly, I'm on a program where we're talking about the vicarious trauma of police officers. You cannot consistently every day deal with crises, the worst of, you know, society has to offer, death, maiming, conflict, and expect to be okay. Mark Wynn says all the time, you can't expect to wade through water and not get wet. And so how do we offer assistance, rehabilitation, et cetera, for police officers so that when they're going from one scene to next scene to next scene to next scene, they can be their best selves. That's almost impossible, right? Yeah, that's a great point. Because we just sort of like expect them to be able to like compartmentalize it and not think about the sum of everything that they've seen that day or that week or that month or that year or that decade. Exactly. One of the best examples of this is I was holding a focus group in Dallas with some law enforcement officers and this female officer is talking about she went to the worst domestic violence crime scene she'd ever been to where she was physically holding this woman's head together, like her scalp together while EMS was trying to, you know, do whatever they could do to get her transported. And then she got another call 
she went to the next call and the woman had broken her nail, you know, and her nail was broken in the, in the conflict. Uh, and um, she's like, I, I was not my best self. <laughs> she's like, I know I did not handle that appropriately. And the woman called her commander and complained. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you should have never been put in that situation. No. Yeah. So it sounds like a, a, a lot of this is, you know, figure is digging into the human experience. Yes. And trying to get, okay, the human experience, what can we do to change the human experience? And by changing that and looking at that and diving in and, and maybe facing the parts of ourselves that, that aren't that pretty, that's the way that we, that we make this huge change in the country that we need. Well done. Yes. Yay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but it's uncomfortable, like, right? Like it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. What can people who listen to this podcast, you know, we might not be able to change policy. We might not be in the room where it happens as they say in Hamilton. <laughs> um, but what can we do to help, you know, other survivors of domestic violence specifically Black survivors of domestic violence, what can we be doing as advocates and allies to be helping? Be willing to um, lift up the voices of Black survivors and know that it doesn't take away from the plight of other survivors to be cognizant that um, the perspectives and the needs are different. Um, I think that would be helpful. Some of what you're doing right now, just giving people the opportunity to put the information out there because, you know, it sounds like you were surprised at some of the information provided. Um, making oh, sure that, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm, you guys have really opened my mind to a lot today. Right. So giving um, Black survivors the space to share their experience should they like to and being willing to support initiatives that are culturally specific. That's great advice. Megan's so nice. I just love her. I'm, I'm always accused of being t- too direct. Give it to All right, Greta, now come on. Get, now you're the direct one. <laughs> yeah, I was like, gosh, I have so much to learn from my colleagues. Um, yeah, so my, my uh, suggestion is work on, work on your stuff <laughs> personally, right? Like, so... If you, you know, I have many white friends who are like, you know, I just grew up where my parents would say this or my grandparents would say that or my cousins this or they're saying this on Facebook, right? I'm like, deal with your own community, right? And that's going to be hard, right? So like a lot of white allies are like, oh, we want to help. We want to help. And I'm like, okay, we're good over here because <laughs> yeah. racism isn't a black problem. Racism is a white problem or other, you know, other ethnicities, whatever, but mostly a white mainstream problem. So why don't our white allies address racism within the white community and then get back to us, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, like, that's really helpful because, I mean, and while I think like, what the moms are doing in Portland is amazing, the wall of moms and, you know, all those things, I think that it is also very difficult. It, it is as difficult to, at Thanksgiving, talk to your uncle about, you know, <laughs> breaking down his his racist tendencies, you know, and and how come the black community hasn't been able to have the same level of success and all of the systemic barriers from redlining to 
food deserts, to lack of adequate health care, to lack of access to education, um, no generational wealth whatsoever, um, you know, since we, since we were shackled and brought to these shores. Um, how all those things and why the narrative of like welfare queens and deadbeat daddies and, you know, all that, why that continues to be so pervasive even when it's not true, mm-hmm. right? Um, like how, it's like do work within your own community and yes, you can be an ally and, and help us. So once you do work in your own, within yourself and within your own community, you're better suited to sit in your humility and in your discomfort when a survivor comes to you and says, hey, I'm being abused or this is happening, whatever, so that you're not like, oh yeah, I saw that show and that's what black men do. Or, oh yeah, you know, I watched this reality show, you know, and da 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 da. So that you're better able to push back on your own stuff and sit and listen to what she actually needs. That's how you can help survivors. Also, within the legal system, procedural fairness is one of the things that we're talking about too. Like, that's how the system's supposed to be. It wasn't created to be like that, it was created to be punitive and to warehouse people. But as we move toward more towards procedural justice, procedural fairness, however you want to coin it, um, and restorative justice, I mean, really, that's what we're talking about, right? Is like we really have a vested interest in our community to help people heal, no matter how they come to us. You know, in the advocacy world, you know, we've been doing this for 20, 25 years now, is we used to say meet people where they are, right? Like to sit and hear their experiences. And whether or not it seems similar or familiar to you, just sit and listen to, to hear what people want, have to say. Um, and I think that that gets really complicated when, to Megan's point, you've never been with a Black person before as a peer or, you know, in a, in a community, right? Um, and so how do you break down your own stuff so that you can actually be helpful? That's really great advice. So the allyship is a verb. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that. What, I, what I'm hearing you say to kind of like, you know, wrap it up and, and just to, to think about this. So when we think of, we have all of these sort of circles that overlap education, um, opportunity, the way that the justice system is put set up, law enforcement, all of these circles, education, they all sort of overlap and mm-hmm. create an experience for black survivors that is more difficult, right? So all of those circles overlap and how we, how we can, you know, allyship be, be the verb is the first thing we can do is take care of our own little circle, right? Like yes. what lives in our body and we can dig in no matter how dirty and awful we might feel about it (laughs) to figure out why we have our own stuff and then the next sort of circle outside us would be the people who might live in our house or our family and close friends and then we can just sort of make our way sort of one circle at a time outside and that's the way that we can help the most is that is that a good put it exactly and it's a lifelong process Mm-hmm. right I mean like that's just the way we talk about abusers like a 52-week program is not going to fix their core values around how they feel about women right or how they treat women but what it does is give them tools around 
hey, my thought process might be a little off. Here are some other tools of how I can constantly work on this throughout my lifespan so that I'm not causing harm. Well, ladies, thank you so much, Greta and Megan, for being on today. I have learned so much, and I know that the listeners have learned just so much. And, you know, please feel free to come back at any time to dig in more about anything. Thank you. (laughs) You Wonderful. And I just, I so appreciate you taking the time to come on and and to really give everyone just like a really good look into, you know, the things that need to be changed. Well, thank you thank and for you. all of your work and for giving us the platform and we appreciate you and please know that we're in this work together with you. And if you ever need anything or your viewers, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media. Our handles at Ujima community and uh, our website is www.ujimacommunity.org. Wonderful. Thank you, thank you, you Megan and Greta. And allowing us the opportunity to share. Oh, of course. Anytime. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to Greta Gordy Gardner and Megan Simmons from Ujima for being on the show today. I learned so much um, and thank you for taking the time um, to speak with me. Just want to remind everyone listening that, like Megan said, allyship is a verb. And as Greta pointed out, you know, the best way that we can combat systemic structural racism in our country is to really do some deep reflection on our own values and our own biases. And the best place to start is really in your own heart. If you are in an unsafe relationship, there is help. Please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That number is 1-800-799-7233. Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE.